you can turn to your Bibles now, to Philippians, as we continue our series there uh, in the book of Philippians. Uh, myself and Steve have been uh, working through it, and uh, hopefully in our studies we can pass on the, the blessing and the encouragement um, that it is um, to, to bring God's Word to you. And so, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now let me read the whole passage first, and we'll pray, and then I'll start. Finally, my brothers, in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes to faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's quickly pray. Abba, Father, we come to you now uh, in your throne of grace, asking you, Lord, to, to bless us. May the Holy Spirit uh, speak to us. He is the author of your word. May he work his word in our hearts, and not just in our heads, so not just in our ears. And Lord, may we uh, be convicted, and may we be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just to recap, um, Paul is uh, writing to the letter, uh, he's writing this letter back uh, with Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi as a response to their generous gift. And he has been admonishing them throughout the letter to rejoice in the Lord all the time. You can see that in verse 1. If you can uh, see the common thread of this letter, every little section he either prefaces or finishes it with rejoice in the Lord. Even though there be suffering, even though there be trials, rejoice, rejoice, and rejoicing is or are to be a, a, an intrinsic to the believer and the believer. Because we are in Christ, we are to be joyful uh, always. We have reasons to be joyful always. And, and as Paul begins this next section, he says, again, rejoice in the Lord. And he says here that although he is repeating the same information that he told them before, he wants to emphasize uh, its importance as a safeguard. And I'm going to say the same things here again, but it is no trouble for me if I keep repeating them. You might have heard, heard me say this to you before, but it's, it's a good thing that you are reminded of them. And the reminder is this, look at me in, in verse 2. 
Paul gives a series of warnings, a series of lookouts, watchouts, and the reason for that is just a bit of background. All throughout the church's life, right from when Jesus has ascended and started to build his church, in all those many decades, many centuries, the church has always been under attack. And this attack is always straight to the truth of the gospel. And for every generation, um, I think it's well documented, false truths or heresies after heresies, attack after attack, um, the gospel has been under. And yet, Paul is saying, we have the truth. And therefore, he's warning the church there, and it is a warning to us even now, to watch out, look out, and the warning is this. Two times three pieces, and the repetition is there, I think, is, is for us to capture both the rhetoric and the urgency. Um, beware, beware, beware. And what are we to be wary of? What is it that we are to avoid, and what is it to be that we are to be cautious of? And this is this. Look out for what? He says in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh, or another translation, uh, mutilators of the flesh. And just let me just uh, unpack those three. Dogs is obviously uh, the derogatory term used here. It's not like the dogs that we know today that are people pets. Um, dogs in those days are, you know, those who are intrusive, those who intrude, and those who are not welcome. They come in uninvited, uh, unwanted. And those evildoers, these men, these group of people, these are evildoers because they do evil. And unlike the missionaries of the authentic gospel, like Paul and the apostles, these men labor in an evil cause. And thirdly, they are described here as mutilators of the flesh. And I know it's a graphic description, but this group um, is really what they are. They are the group. Um, in present as well in the Galatian church. These groups are present in the early church because <clears throat> if you remember the early church is made up mostly of Jewish believers. It was all Jews first um, before it expanded and expanded. And because these were Jewish Christians, a lot of the traditions have been uh, mingled and passed over and there's some um, overlap. But these particular group, they want to push for circumcision. This group, uh, the circumcision group, are called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers are a faction of Jewish Christians who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians. And that is a major problem because it's a direct contradiction to what the gospel is about. Remember what we were just singing? Christ has set us free. We are free in Christ. There's no chains binding us. And yet these Judaizers insist, okay, you're, you're a believer in Christ, but you have to do this. And in addition, this is a requirement. You trust in Jesus, but you have to do this. And they're, they're pushing their agenda that everybody be circumcised physically um, in order to be part of God's people. And that is absolutely not true, it's heresy. Because Jesus has done it fully. He's done it 100% grace. No additional of anything is needed. 
um, fully trusting and fully uh, full dependency on Christ alone. So therefore, there's no extra thing you need to do, or is a requirement. You only need to put your faith in Christ. And he calls them mutilators because their confidence lies in circumcision, a physical operation on the flesh, rather than in God's gracious work through Jesus Christ. And this group of people are rampant, and even in Galatians, and I encourage you to read Galatians, Paul makes his argument there of works through the law versus faith, and it's a very a good, uh, you should read it um, in Galatians. But I'll just read a snippet of it. It says, look, verse 2, chapter 5, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So again, Paul is hitting those groups very aggressively because you are bringing works. You are bringing earning again. You are bringing legalism. You are bringing all these things that God is saying, I reject those things. I only require one thing, and that is faith. To my son, you want righteousness? You can come to the law, but you will fail. Come to Jesus for righteousness. And so these are the circumcision people. And in verse 3, this is interesting that Paul addresses, then he says, for we are the circumcision. So he describes those Jews as mutilators of the flesh, and yet he says, we, including himself, uh, say to the Philippians, we are the circumcision. And it's interesting that he says this because Paul, we know, is a fully authentic Jew. And in more ways than one, as we'll see later, but because he's a Jew, he's obviously circumcised. But the Philippians, they are not Jews, they are Gentiles. Gentile believers who would not have been, um, they wouldn't have the custom to circumcise like the Jews. And yet, Paul associates with them, we are the circumcision, not them, they are, they call themselves the circumcision group, but they are mutilated to the flesh. We are the circumcision because it's not really about the physical cutting of the flesh. And he says this because that's not what God had intended. Even in the Old Testament, we see God hinting at what really is this whole circumcision is about. Remember that God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And circumcision, just as a background, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, was a visible mark that identified those who bore it as members of Israel. It was a covenantal sign that God gave to Abraham and to his descendants that they were God's chosen nation. The problem is, is that the Israelites placed their confidence in possession of this physical mark that they felt that their election was secure even if their hearts strayed after God, uh, other gods. Even if they went after all the false gods and with their gross idolatry, 
they have this false security that, oh, we're the people of God. We're circumcised. We're from Abraham. And yet, that's not what uh, secures them. That's not what qualifies them. It's just a visible outside mark. And if I can ask the question, um, do we see uh, something of the light today? We might not have a group running around calling everybody that you should circumcise the part of God's people, but I think there are many modern uh, equivalents to the same, um, if it sounds familiar. Uh, do we see ourselves and we see other people place their confidence in certain associations, certain affiliations uh, with religion perhaps? Uh, the kind of family that they're born into? Do they put stock in their lineage and where they're from? And I think um, it's visible even today. Um, circumcision is far deeper than just an outward mark. Even the Old Testament writers remind the people of God that this physical right should be symbolic of a deeper commitment. Remember, there was a covenant I will be your God and you will be my people. And part of that, yes, remember they're so eager to say, yes, we will do all these things. Not far later, um, they, didn't, they didn't hold up the end of the covenant as you see with the Israelites. But they have this thing, this, this sign of circumcision. But the Old Testament referred to this um, deeper commitment as the circumcision of the heart. That's what really is about. Because they look forward to a time when God Himself would figuratively perform this operation on the hearts of His people so that they may be committed to Him. It's not an outward change, it's an inward transformation that God Himself performs. And I like the use of the surgical language here. Um, circumcision, you know, cutting around. And God is saying that He will do this heart transplant, if you like, this heart transformation, that you will be changed on the inside and be truly part of God's people. And the reference is here even in Deuteronomy, when Moses writes, uh, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. It was never about the outside Mark. It, it's a foreshadow of what's to come and now has come in Christ. The circumcision of hearts. And that's the critical qualification for entrance into God's people in this new era. Therefore, physical circumcision is irrelevant. And that's why Paul can confidently say um, to the physically uncircumcised Gentiles, the Philippians, we are the circumcisions. And he describes this, uh, the true circumcision by which we think in verse 3. He says, those who worship by the Spirit of God, those who glory in Christ Jesus, and those who put no confidence in the flesh. So the first one there, they worship by the Spirit. And as I said, I was saying earlier, the early church were mostly made up of Jewish believers. And so they were forced to recognize that God had included uncircumcised Gentile believers within His people by placing His Spirit among them. Then we read from Acts um, chapter 10 verse 44. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came when all who heard the message. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. And this is what the true circumcision is. Those who worship by the Spirit. And even Peter uh, acknowledged all of this because he's the one who preached this. And remember at the beginning he was struggling when he had a vision from God and saying, am I to go to this Gentile person, Cornelius, and all this food in front of him, this vision, that these unclean and clean foods, and God says, well, I've declared them all clean. Get up, uh, kill and eat. And, but even Peter fell back, even though he preached this, he knew the truth, he fell back his temptation, he, he went back to his own prejudice, and Paul had to rebuke him in his face uh, in Galatians. We read a little bit about that when Paul rebukes him in front of all of them. He says, Peter, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You are a stumbling block. You are not proclaiming the gospel. You are putting on this yoke on them. It was such an influence and such an obstacle that many were led astray, including Barnabas. And he continues on this argument that we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. And he continues on and says, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's really the crux of it. If you could earn, or if you could gain righteousness by following the law, by law keeping, by adhering to all these little customs and regulations, but then Jesus died for nothing. He didn't need to come at all. He didn't need to suffer and die and offer himself as a propitiation, as a sacrifice. There's no need. We could, have, we could gain righteousness in any other way. But um, if righteousness or right standing could be attained by the works or any sort of adherence to the law, then Jesus didn't have to offer himself. When Jesus said, I am the way, the way, he meant no one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive access through Christ only. And, but you can see and you can tell the, the obstacle that it was for the Jews because it was so ingrained in them, you know. Every uh, male were to be circumcised to be part of God's people and yet you see the gospel opened the door. Um, the real circumcision, those who worship by the Spirit. And do we see any modern equivalent of that today, especially in our life, especially in our context here? Um, once was well known as Catholic Ireland, and I think that's dying now, but uh, Catholic Ireland, it's a, many, it's a major obstacle for many. And some of us even might struggle and, and say with, with this new truth and this gospel, so you mean I don't need to do the sacraments? So you mean I don't have to name my child a Christian name, whatever that means? I don't need to sprinkle water on my baby to secure their place in heaven. This communion, this confession, penance, and everything else, which is uh, quite frankly, are made up by man. We just insist 
or in putting on chains that Jesus had already broken. There is freedom and true liberty under His grace, but we just have this tendency as man to add to it though. We add to the gospel when it's meant to be fully 100% sufficient, we insist that no, there should be more. We, we just need to do a bit more. We need to cooperate with God. And when we have this, we need to add um, because how could it be? And that's not gospel at all. In fact, um, it doesn't have to be characteristically Catholic, those I just described. Uh, we can make a whole infrastructure, a whole system of works, and that's what essentially um, religion is. It's man's system to God. It's literally like Tower of Babel. I'm going to come to you, God. I'm going to build my tower of time and heavens to get to you. But that's not what the gospel is about. We cannot, we can never reach God on our own. God had to come down and reach us. And so, do we evaluate our standing with God with how we live this week even? In our heads, do we feel guilty? Or do we feel um, better when we think we've sinned uh, less this week? Do you believe God favors you more now because of that? Or do we measure guilt by our own performance? All of that, though they be subtle, are still relying outside of Christ, isn't it? It may not be formal religion, but in its essence, it's the same thing. And the danger with this kind of thinking is that we lose perspective of who holy God is and who we are in relation to Him. Um, this subtle, arrogant, prideful attitude creeps in, and before we know it, we are not wholly relying on Christ and on what He's done anymore. And as Paul describes it, we are no longer acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And so, my main message, if anything, you can come away with is this. Fully reliance on Jesus Christ alone. It's grace by grace, day by day. Um, my standing has not changed a millimeter, even though my, my own head, my performance this week had been poor. I might have been spiritually dry and all these things, but my standing has not moved. And I want you to be encouraged. We are the same, we're just as loved as when we sin a little bit more this week and we are just uh, as accepted even when we think we're doing better um, however we measure that but it's all by grace everything and let's come back to the gospel fix our eyes on Jesus on his work because we can very easily fall back into this mindset and the other two characteristics that Paul describes is certain, the true circumcision and the next two, they are actually related. They glory in Christ and they put no confidence in the flesh. These are two truths, um, two sides of the one coin, if you like. And the word glory there, in the glory in Christ, can mean to boast in Jesus, which is the inverse way of saying those who do not boast in the flesh. So Paul's point is that the basis for the Christian's confidence is Christ rather than any human social privileges. He regards confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ as mutually exclusive. You are either confident in the Lord or not. 
And to embrace this Judaized form of the gospel, which these groups are pushing, which is no gospel at all, he says in Galatians, they present a different gospel. Well, it's not a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. If you're, to, if you're adding stuff to what Jesus had done, even if the angels preach that message, that's not true. Um, I present you the true truth. The gospel is to rely fully on Jesus. And so, and Paul's word, the, the word flesh, those who do not put confidence in the flesh, it perfectly means human weakness. When you read flesh in the Old Testament, it means human weakness, it means frailty, and it means tendency to sin. And that's usually the, the connotation in the Old Testament, but it's, I think it's he's very, uh, being clever with his words here. It's perfectly apt to say, because these Judaizers are literally advocating for the literal operation on the flesh. So I think there's a dual um, clever use of the word flesh. Not only they're relying on the outward operation, but as a whole, uh, generally, they are relying on human weakness. They're relying on the flesh. And just as a side note, and I was thinking this, the Judaizers were so fixed on this additional thing or the requirement that they were literally known as the circumcision group. That was their reputation. That was their thing. And you know, we can see some of these, um, even today, some of these denominations call their group names, um, particularly to emphasize on what they're about. You know, uh, for example, like the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, the special type of they have a special emphasis on the seventh day. And that seventh day is to be treated like the Sabbath. And and it's just interesting to me that uh, the Judaizers never, uh, it never occurred to them that what, with this logic, what about the women? You know, by that logic, all the women are excluded because circumcision were only meant for the male. And I thought that was funny because you're walking around a uh, circumcision, how can you tell them if, if some of the women are truly in God's people if they are not circumcised as in the law? And, but the bottom line is, Christians have placed their confidence in Christ alone, whereas the feet of the Judaizers rest on a fallen human foundation that will inevitably collapse. They won't have anything to stand on on the final day if they are banking on circumcision, if they are banking on righteousness through the law. And I love the way in verse 4, Paul articulates his arguments in the letters. Paul is well-studied, he is well-educated, he's more than able to, to, to give a good debate. And I might argue it's very hard to debate with him because all of his arguments are very robust and he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best of them. And in his argument here, he's saying here in verse 4, so you require circumcision. Well, if that's the case, I have more. He says, in other words, I am therefore overqualified. Right? And he lists these things. Um, here's why. In verse 5, circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Um, his parents. So he's saying, I have many advantages that I can thank on. I'm going to just going to listen out. Circumcision is like a staple one. You get that. And you're the only one, uh, you're only pushing for that. Well, raise your standard a little bit. 
His parents supplied him with impeccable credentials as a member of God's people. So he, he's got circumcision, he's got racial identity with Israel, membership in the tribe that gave Israel the first king. Remember who's Israel first king? Saul came from one tribe, tribe of Benjamin. Um, he's the ability to speak the language. I mean, credit to Paul's parents for being devout Jews. He's literally set up already, even before he was born. But um, quite literally, in verse 6, Paul is on a league of his own, on his own here. In, in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism um, beyond many my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Not only was he born in the right lineage, not only has he got all of these privileges and advantages, he was just as passionate and zealous. He's effectively saying to them, I can outpassion all of you. You're all really plain in comparison to how I was as a Pharisee. You only demand circumcision, but I demand more stringent measures if you are to sign up to my study. Paul, as you remember, was super zealous to the point that he was actively persecuting Christians, those who follow Jesus, approving of their punishment and death. Uh, we see that with Stephen, the first martyr. Um, it's not the most, you know, favorite verse memorized, but if you read in Acts 8, chapter 1, it says, Paul approved of killing of him. So he was that kind of person. When there was only Stephen who followed Jesus, he approved of that because he believed he was doing the right thing for God in persecuting Christians. Um, and in verse 8 or verse 6 there, it says, He concludes by saying, with respect to righteousness that comes by the law. So we can summarize this. So with, with respect to that, I was blameless. I can follow, I follow through the law um, to the T, and I can follow it very accurately. His parents have done everything for him, required uh, the Jews to do, and he himself had diligently observed the law. And Paul's point here is saying, at that time, Paul trusted that one day this heritage and these achievements would help him to stand acquitted before God. And yet he's saying, I renounce all of it as nothing. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of these advantages he considers now as loss. And how did he come to know this? How did he come to this um, conviction? Well, like a lightning bolt out of the blue, as he was doing his persecuting of the Christians on his way to Damascus, the Lord on that day stopped him in his tracks. On, the, on that day, the Lord effectively circumcised his heart. Jesus himself has brought this change in Paul, a complete 180 turn. So in one, one minute, Paul was fully relying on his lineage and his performance and his righteousness through the law and Jesus had turned him around and he saw what he is and that's why that's why he can say all this because 
He's been changed. And he goes even further. Look at me in verse 8. Um, not only in his fleshy advantages that he counts as loss. He says, but everything I count as rubbish. For the surpassing, for the sake of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He has come to know the Lord personally that everything else had faded into insignificance. And Paul really exemplifies what it means to be a Christian here. To be a Christian is really to forsake everything else he thought may have some value in exchange for knowing Jesus. Or as he describes in the Galatians, are known by God. Not only do you know God, but you are known by God. And to know Christ is to be known by Him. Is your name today written in the Mass Book of Life? Serious question. Do you know the most terrifying words you'll ever hear? The most harrowing, frightening, the most awful feeling like your heart is sinking when you hear bad news? Well, it's not the doctor saying you have cancer and you have six months to live. It's not the guards calling to your house saying your husband or your wife have been in a car accident. It's not the news from your boss saying, sorry, we had to let you go. It's not even your girlfriend texting you and breaking up with you. It's not any of those. Um, it's not, doesn't come close to the most uh, terrifying words. You know what the most terrifying words, sentences? From Jesus' mouth. I never knew you away from me. And that's the worst news anybody can hear. And by the time you hear those words, there is no more. But fiction forever. That's not the news you want to hear. That's not the news I want to hear. And I want to encourage us that we can know Him and be known by Him. So that we'll be welcomed. And the devil says, never say to us, they never do. And that's why Paul is saying here, um, I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ, which essentially means to be found in Him. Will you be found in Him? Or will you be found clinging to the righteousness that is available through the law? There is no amount of law-keeping that you can do to present to God that can justify you. All that you're doing really uh, is annoying him and presenting him with the filthiest of rags. That's self-righteousness. He looks at that with, as filthy rags. And, but what's the point of the law then? Why is it there? The law is there to simply tell us that you cannot keep it. There are 630 commandments, recorded commandments in the Old Testament. And the most famous ten, we you know, ten commandments. And I already broke the first one. Never mind dishonoring my parents, never mind murder, never mind adultery, stealing, lying, coveting. I broke the first one already. And there's 613 of them. You shall have no other gods before me. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one, at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. It's like a, a mirror. See a mirror? Even if you just chip the corner, you don't say, oh, you chip part of the corner, you sort of chip the mirror. You chip the whole thing. It's as good as nothing. And yet you can say, oh, it's only a small chip. 
But that's not the point. The point is it's not perfect anymore. It's not flawless. And that's what God requires. Um, and so the point of righteousness through the law, no one could be made righteous by the law because we all break it. And so Jesus has come because He's the one who's fulfilled the law and it's His righteousness that is given to us. And that is how, um, how it is to rely on the law. We, we rely on Christ and He points us to Him. You know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, there's this great exchange that has happened. This what theologians would call this double imputation. When Jesus died on the cross, He took on our sin, like our murderers. He bore our sin. He was imputed on Him our sin. At the very same time, His righteousness has been imputed to us almost instantaneously. When you put your faith in Christ, that exchange happens. And because that event happened, we don't have our sin on us, it's on Christ. And because it's on Christ, He suffered the judgment of that sin. And what do we have? We have His righteousness. We have been made, uh, declared by God Himself, righteous, justified. And that's the most amazing news you could hear. Um, with our song we'll singing later, I thought it was apt to, to sing it. And we should be singing this in our hearts. With full of joy that knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Um, you're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, and you're my righteousness, and I love you. And that's, uh, I think we should be singing in response when we hear news like this, that we don't have the burden to earn ourselves to heaven because we can never do it anyway. And this famous song, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so we should all cling with all our might to that cross, realizing that he's the one holding us fast, safe and secure. And I was, uh, as I was preparing the sermon, it just brings back um, to the ultimatum, the final proposition. It's really black and white. It's, uh, it brings home to me sometimes. This whole thing of being a Christian, it's really, it really means just one thing, to be found in Him. Knowing Jesus is heaven. It's not a place, it's a person. Does Jesus know you? Will you be found in Him? Or will you be found like these Judaizers relying on their own righteousness? And I don't mean to scare longer, um, although the warnings are there, and we should definitely heed them. It really is knowing Jesus in an intimate way that your heart is assured. There's peace there. Um, you, will feel, you will truly feel as you truly are forgiven. That's the feeling in the world, and that's the reality in the world. And so if you're in Christ, you are forgiven and you are justified. And this is why Paul can say, I forsake all things, all of the sufferings have gone through, and we know a lot of them. He's been shipwrecked many times and beaten. He's been persecuted, put in prison, in chains. He's been heartbroken by people deserting him. He's been disappointed by people failing to follow Jesus faithfully. Many, many heartaches, many, many sufferings, and yet he can still say, I have them all 
as a loss for the sake of, the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Um, he's always viewed his suffering as an extension of Christ's death, his own suffering, and that's why he says in verse 10 to 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And we should be all like Jesus in his death. He's, he's always saying there is no resurrection when there's no death. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Your Lord suffered, died, so should you suffer and die because but He has been risen and you have resurrection as well. And there's no glory without suffering. And so Paul is, is writing uh, to the Philippians to encourage them, but to warn them because these attacks are always going to be there. These um, propositions of you can do this your own, by your own merit. And that's what religion is. There's so many religions in the world because that's man's tendency. We don't want God coming to us, giving us a hand in reaching Him. We want to get there our own way. And this is really, I'm saying this right now officially, all religions will not lead to God, even though many will play over only different paths leading to the one destination of saying no. All those paths lead to another direction. That's your common thing. It doesn't lead to God. Jesus says, I am the way. And just so, um, if we're relying, if we're ever tempted to rely on our own efforts, let's recall the gospel again and be encouraged that it is by grace. Another day, another grace, another reliance on His. And so just to summarize my message and to finish, adding to the gospel, which this group aims to do, is no gospel at all. There are two sources of righteousness, truth the law or true faith in Christ. But truth the law, no one can keep. So there's no righteousness to be found there. Um, the one leads to false assurance and failure, because it's literally based on human weakness, the flesh. And the other one fully relies on Jesus. Which one will you be found clinging on to on the final day? And Paul, using himself as the example, Judaizers, I was once like you, trusting in my own privileges and advantages. But I, I, I admonish you to turn from your ways because they all count for nothing but Christ. And so I hope that the Lord will bless the message to us, encourage our hearts to keep going, to preach to ourselves when we wake up in the morning, Lord, I'm forgiven. This day, I'm blessed. Today, I rely on your grace. And that should be uh, the way to live the Christian life. And so let's, let's pray and ask God for all these things. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is... Your truth, despite what many um, claims that it isn't, it is your truth, your gospel. And help us, Lord, to stay true to it. It is fully, uh, by grace, true faith on Jesus, on His work on the cross. That's the only righteousness that we can uh, present to you when we point Jesus to you. And so, Lord, thank you that we are assured that when you look at us, we are justified because you see Help us, Lord, not to be found clinging to our own righteousness, especially on the final day 
when there's no turning back, we want to hear Jesus say to us, well done, good and faithful. Not, I never knew you. And so Lord, may everybody here in this room uh, will see in heaven and not another, the other destination. And so Lord, thank you for your word. Encourage your hearts. Bless the rest of the service now as we remember your sacrifice as we take the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.